0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg
1: Radio.
2: Federal district courts in 13 states are already dealing with shortages of judges that are considered judicial emergencies. What happens after the pandemic when the backlog of cases that have been put on hold is added to an already overtaxed system? Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. So, first of all, explain what a judicial emergency
3: is. Well, when there's a vacancy in a particular court, the administrative office of the U.S. courts looks at the time that vacancy has been open and how many cases each judge on the court is carrying. And they have a formula. And uh, I believe the cutoff on timing is something like 18 months. But the one that's more important, I think, for our purposes and for many courts uh, in terms of the 44 emergencies is the caseload. And for example, in the Central District of California in Los Angeles, most of the judges are carrying uh, twice the average caseload, other judges in the 93 remaining districts around the country. And so when you have that kind of caseload, it's just very difficult to process all of the cases. And so the administrative office declares an emergency, and hopefully the Senate prioritizes with the White House those emergencies and tries to fill them first. But that doesn't always happen.
2: So a judicial vacancy is not the same as a judicial emergency?
3: No, absolutely not. We now have 73 district court vacancies at the trial level in the federal system, but 44 of those are emergencies, given their huge caseloads and sometimes the long periods they've been open.
2: Now, let's just talk about some of the districts that really seem to be suffering, like the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. Five of seven judgeships are vacant How long has that been going on and how do they even deal with that on a normal day?
3: Well, it's extremely difficult. And of course, that was the center of where the virus started, at least in the U.S. And a number of those vacancies have been more than a year and some, I think, up to two or three years. And so that really makes it pressing. They do have senior judges. And they are pitching in and have for a long time. But by definition, they are older than active judges because you have to be 65 and have 15 years of service. And, of course, that might put them in a vulnerable population. Uh, And they've been working very hard for years now. And so Judge Martinez, the chief judge, has been very concerned and so they are talking about the possibility of bringing in judges from other districts. And, of course, that happens fairly often and is, is a practice that often is used in the federal judiciary to move resources around. For example, a judge in a less busy district, I believe the Eastern District of Washington, mostly in Spokane, some of the judges there are willing to come over and help out in Seattle. And that's been an effective mechanism to use. And, of course, now most of the courts are essentially shuttered in many districts, especially for civil cases, but also some courts, Central District of California, Eastern District, have sought exemptions from the Speedy Trial Act on the criminal law side. And so when the courts do reopen, then there'll be this huge pent-up demand, at least on the civil side and probably on the criminal side. And so for the Western District of Washington, those issues are going to loom even larger. And the Chief Judge Martinez said he was concerned that there wouldn't be any new judges until 2021. So it's going to be very difficult in that court to do very much especially once the court is open and trying to move the civil and criminal cases.
2: Also, I wonder if the judges that they were going to call on are going to be backed up with their own cases once the courts reopen.
3: Well, yes, and I think that's true. It will depend on the court. There are 94 district courts around the country, and some of them have had less restrictions imposed, though I doubt very many have no restrictions. The Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, the administrative arm of the federal courts, has probably pretty good data on what the caseloads look like around the country and which judges are laboring under huge caseloads and ones who have lighter caseloads. And hopefully there could be some moving of judges around from the districts that are not so pressed as places like Washington or Central District of California.
2: We've been talking about this as an emergency for quite some time. And what's interesting is the two active judges in that district are eligible for retirement themselves at this point. But why no judges even in the pipeline there?
3: Well, that's a good question. It's not clear, but the White House has been more solicitous of filling vacancies in the red states than the blue states. For example, 35 of the 44 emergency vacancies are in blue states like Washington, New York, Illinois, and California. And New Jersey is probably the worst case scenario where there are six vacancies, all emergencies out of 17 judgeships, and no nominee from the Trump administration to date.
2: Let's turn to the Central District of California. The chief judge there said they're not expecting any judges until late 2021 or early 2022. And their caseload is over a 1,000 weighted cases. That's more than double the national average. What is a weighted case?
3: That looks at the type of case it is. In other words, some cases are easier and simpler to resolve than others, and so if you have a very complex case, that gets a very high weighting, and so that's the way they try to balance out the caseload. And um, as you suggest, California Central District has these huge vacancies. There are some nominees for there are ten emergencies in Central District out of twenty-seven, and so they're really in an extreme situation. However. There are nominees for eight of those positions, and three are on the floor awaiting uh, confirmation votes. So I'm cautiously optimistic that those three will be confirmed uh, and could well be confirmed whenever the Senate comes back. And so there's some uh, hope that at least three of them would be filled, and two of those are presently uh, state Judges uh, at the Superior Court level in, I think, Los Angeles County, and so would be experienced judges and probably ready to take on uh, these huge caseloads. But for the others, it'll be more difficult, of course. So some um, could have hearings and be confirmed this year.
2: The average judge will handle about 500 weighted cases. How do they even handle that many? That seems like an enormous number of balls in the air, so to speak.
3: Well, that's true, but uh, they have many mechanisms and some help from magistrate judges and their clerks and court personnel. And don't forget, 95% of civil and criminal cases settle. Uh, So it's not as if you're going to try all those cases. A tiny percentage are tried. Uh, And so that's the way the system tries to cope is to encourage uh, settlements.
2: As far as the California judicial emergencies, a spokesman for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blamed the crisis on the California Democratic senators, Dianne Feinstein and Kamala Harris, not allowing, quote, highly qualified nominees to move forward. Harris's spokeswoman told Bloomberg that she's worked diligently to advance more qualified nominees. What's happening there? The push and pull here.
3: Well, you have to go back to the beginning of the Trump administration. And as we've talked about before, the administration wanted to concentrate on filling all of the appellate court vacancies. And there were a number in California. They have now filled, I believe, four appellate vacancies, all with the president's choices, uh, all of whom were opposed by the two California senators but there seemed to be some agreement on the district nominees for what are now 17 vacancies uh, statewide. There are nominees for 14 of those, and I don't have any sense that either senator is opposed to any of those uh, nominees. In fact, they return their blue slips on all of them, and some, as we've said, have hearings and are before uh, on the Senate floor. So, It's a little mystifying exactly what McConnell's spokesperson is saying. There seems to be substantial cooperation from the senators.
2: For those who haven't been listening to our conversations (laughs) about these judgeships, explain the blue slip and how it's still being used for district court nominees.
3: Yes. The Republicans essentially eliminated it for the appeals courts which enabled them to confirm record numbers of people and leave only one pellet vacancy nationwide out of 179 now. But Chairman Graham of the Senate Judiciary Committee has said he would honor them for the district courts. So both home state senators receive blue slips from the chair when there's a nomination in their state. And then they may choose to return that, which signals that, They agree the person should have a hearing and go through the process, or the senators can retain it. That would be the end of the nomination. And so the senators have returned all of those blue slips for the nominees in California.
2: Are some senators pushier about this? Let's talk about blue states, because that's where most of the emergencies are. Are some of the senators pushier about this, and that's why they're moving a little bit faster than, let's say, California or New Jersey?
3: Well, they are, but some of it comes down to the relationship between the White House counsel, who is really in charge of what happens in the White House on nominations, uh, and the home state senators. Uh, For example, Senator Durbin from Illinois uh, has been very aggressive and very effective in working closely with the first White House counsel and the present White House counsel to secure nominations uh, in a timely way and move them through the Senate. He's very high in uh, the leadership on the Democratic side, and he's a longtime member of the committee. And he's been extremely successful, uh, as has Senator Schumer. Um, by way of filling vacancies in New York and having nominees for uh present vacancies, though there are some vacancies still there, and so uh and Senator Feinstein, his ranking member on judiciary, has enjoyed some success with district nominees from California, though they haven't been confirmed yet and so it really depends on um the senators from the home states working closely. And cooperatively with uh, the White House. Uh, but there's plenty of blame to go around, and often the White House has not reached out or been as collegial as it might be in working with the home state senators.
2: You mentioned before that California is asking now for them to suspend the speedy trial.
3: The and, Eastern District of California, the Chief Judge there, as well as Chief Judge Phillips in the central district have asked the Ninth Circuit Judicial Council to suspend the Speedy Trial Act because of the crunch of caseloads.
2: Will there be any problems with, with attorneys for those defendants saying he or she has a constitutional right to have a speedy trial?
3: Well, yes. And that would be the argument that could well be made by individual counsel for specific defendants. And that's why they have these exceptions in the Speedy Trial Act, which act as a sort of safety valve. But by and large, they're supposed to be speedy trials.
2: That's Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. The countdown
0: has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City, Qatar, and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg
1: Radio.
2: Drive-thru Easter services took place in Kentucky after a new federal judge, nominated to a high-profile appeals court, found that restrictions placed on those services were unconstitutional. But it wasn't the decision itself that attracted attention. It was the way Judge Justin Walker wrote that opinion. He begins by citing St. Paul's Gospels rather than case law and delves into the historical plight of Christians before getting to the case at hand at about page 7. More of a sermon than a legal decision. Joining me is Josh Blackman, a constitutional law professor at the South Texas College of Law. Tell us about the decision itself. Was it in line with legal authority? Was he
1: correct? When you look at this decision, I think you have to consider the timeline. The timeline is very important here. You have Easter on Sunday. You have these emergency papers filed on Thursday and into Friday, And then you have a ruling on Saturday. My objection to this ruling wasn't so much the outcome. I think you probably got the law right. Um, My objection to this ruling was the fact that it even needed to happen. Um, Had the court held a short 20-minute status conference, he could have gotten the mayor's position. And I think the mayor would have said that we are not going to take any action against the uh, uh, churchgoers. At that point, the motion for a temporary restraining order against the mayor becomes moot. Uh, Perhaps there'll be some relief against the governor or the state police, but it would not be against the city of Louisville. So I think the decision was probably right on the merits, um, but it isn't clear to me that this decision needs to happen, that you need to issue an injunction against the mayor because he doesn't plan to take action in the first place.
2: What about the way he wrote the opinion? He begins by citing St. Paul's Gospel. According to St. Paul, the first pilgrim was Abel. He talks about the passion of Christ, the plight of Christians. What was your reaction to just the way this sounded more like a sermon than a legal opinion?
1: It, it sounded like a sermon. Um, I, 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 was, I was kind of surprised by the tone Um, I also think that parts of it were a little bit political. Um, He was talking about histories of religious discrimination, and he mentioned the KKK, which has a lot of religious discrimination. And he noted that Justice Hugo Black and the Democratic majority leader, Robert Byrd, were Klan's members. Um, That's fairly well known in legal circles, but who cares, right? It's not relevant. I mean, I suppose it's relevant to show that Klan's members reach high-ranked society, um, but it's taken on a political tone in modern-day usage. Um, I think the opinion could have been a lot shorter, could have gotten the point quicker. And I didn't think a lot of the rhetoric was really helpful to the analysis.
2: But was it appropriate even to be talking about the passion of Christ and ending with prayer, almost saying Christ being there for us and have faith in that? Is is that even appropriate?
1: I don't think I've ever seen an opinion quite like it. Um, perhaps the judge thought it was appropriate given the subject matter, um, Easter, um, but I, I, I have not seen something like it. I, I it, it was a new one for me.
2: So now we come to the point of why. So this is a judge who has been a federal judge for about six months after getting an unqualified rating from the American Bar Association. But President Trump has nominated him to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, considered the second highest court in the land. Did he look at this as almost an audition for that spot or a higher spot?
1: Um, so a few points, June. Uh, the, the the audition criticism is not new. Um, we've seen that in the past, and I'll give you a couple examples. Um, when Judge Roberts was on uh, was was in the consideration to be to fill the Rehnquist seat uh, back in, or actually with the O'Connor seat back in two thousand five. Um. Judge Roberts issued a decision on a Guantanamo case that was very much pro-Bush administration, Um, and it it helped the Bush administration on an important detention issue. Um, A lot of people said that Roberts wrote that opinion as an audition tape for the Supreme Court. He was actually picked eventually. Uh, I don't think so. I think Roberts wrote what he actually thinks and would have written in any circumstance. Um, There was another audition issue involving Judge Sotomayor when she was in the Second Circuit. Time, this is in 2000, I guess, nine or so, um, she was on the shortlist for the Supreme Court, and it was widely known that Judge Souter, or Justice Souter, was going to retire. And the Second Circuit had a case involving a, a, a racial preferences. Uh, the case involved Frank Ricci, who was a New Haven firefighter. This is a very well known case, you probably recall. Um, and this was a huge case. And the Second Circuit panel that heard included Judge Sotomayor. And rather than actually engaging the, the issue, the, the panel wrote this very short, peculiar opinion, it was an unsigned opinion that basically blew off the issue. And Judge Jose Cabranes wrote this scathing dissenting, what are you doing? This is such an important issue. How can you treat it so casually? And it was widely assumed that Sotomayor wrote that to make her uh, confirmation easier. And I, I, I'm skeptical of those arguments. I think judges do what they do for other reasons. Um, I, I don't like reading bad intent into people. Um, and uh, eventually, the Supreme Court reversed Sotomayor, uh, and this was a huge issue in a confirmation hearing. Uh, so going to Judge Walker, I think he would have handled this case exactly the same if he had never been nominated. I think this is probably what he thinks about the case, independent of his nomination. Um, indeed, the fact that he's been nominated uh, means he's not auditioning as much. He got, I mean, he basically has the job, um, unless this opinion alienated people, which could actually backfire but he didn't need to suck up to anyone to get this uh, a nomination. He already has it um, so I'm skeptical june of the uh, of the audition point I, I don't um after the aba i I've been overly critic overtly critical of their review process. Um, the unqualified rating uh, that they give doesn't always mean what you think it means. I think a lot of cases been it's been given in a uh, uh unfair fashion. Um, to be frank justin uh, judge Walker has not had uh, a lot of legal experience. And, and that might be a ground to knock him as unqualified. Uh, but a lot of other people were deemed unqualified on the basis of like their character and people like them or not. These are sort of subjective factors.
2: Is it odd that you take someone who is 38 years old, who's been on the bench for about six months and nominate him to DC Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a feeder sort of for the Supreme Court? Isn't that a stretch?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, June, I'll be frank. There was a very long line of people who were waiting for that D.C. Circuit seat. Uh, These are people who have been partners at prominent law firms, um, prominent academics, um, judges in other courts. Um, There were a lot of people who were head of the line. Um, And I think the the obvious answer is Mitch McConnell wanted his person. McConnell's made no secret about this. Um, And Mitch McConnell has clout. Um, Now, we've had a lot of young judges appointed to the courts of appeals with, with no judicial experience. Uh, uh, during the Reagan administration, I think Judge Edith Jones was 38 or so, and she's now a prominent Fifth Circuit judge. with She's well-known. Not uh, everyone likes her, but she's very well she's well respected. A lot of people don't like her. I like her. I'm a fan of hers, but, but she's very well-known. Uh, judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, uh, I think it was 37 or 38, the other one is Alex Kaczynski. That's internet so well. Maybe it's not such a good idea. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I take my point back. The social climbers uh, who get there so young maybe aren't. But I think as a general matter, age is not a, uh, a permanent disqualifier. I think more than anything else, Judge Walker got that nomination in part because of Senator McConnell's sway, and he McConnell has a lot of sway. I think in the hist- history, there are not many new district court judges who put up, although I think Judge Centel if memory serves, was a district judge in North Carolina. Uh, and he had been a judge for not a terribly long time, but he had been a district judge. Um, at the time, as I recall, Senator Helms was very influential, and Senator Helms pushed Reagan to put centell in the D.C. Circuit. So there, there is you know some precedent, call it good or bad, but there's some precedent for this move.
2: Majority Leader McConnell tweeted about the decision and praised it, as did the other Kentucky Senator, Rand Paul. But does a decision like this add to the problems of the culture war that seem to be almost exacerbated during this pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I June, you can't stop politicians from being politicians. When politicians see things they like, they praise it. So, of course, McConnell or Rand Paul see something they like; they're going to they're going to celebrate. I think that's that's sort of unavoidable. Um, I think Judge Walker could have done well to have avoided the sort of toxic culture around these issues in this difficult time by maybe issuing a more uh, moderately worded opinion and perhaps asking the city of Louisville what your plans are before issuing this ruling. I think the entire case could have been simply mooted by the fact that there's really no need to resolve this dispute now. Let me ask
2: you about something else while I have you on. The Department of Justice announced in a tweet that Attorney General William Barr is getting ready to sue states that limit the ability of parishioners to pray together during the pandemic. I'm wondering what the boundaries are here as far as parishioners being able to get together during this time.
1: I think DOJ has actually even moved ahead. Um, There was a case filed in Mississippi, I believe, uh, challenging one of these bans on people meeting in houses of worship. The Department of Justice filed what's called a statement of interest, which is not exactly a lawsuit, but it's kind of like an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief. So DOJ has gotten involved. Uh, Look, I'll be honest, these issues are very tough. Generally, the government under the free exercise clause can't single out religion for certain burdens. Stay-at-home orders aren't really singling out religion. They apply to all institutions. You can't meet more than 10 people. Uh, but then there are exceptions, right, where you carve out all these various exceptions. So why can you have a drive through Wendy's but not a drive through church?
2: Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Josh. That's Josh Blackman, a constitutional law professor at the South Texas College of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.